0: When I first met my girlfriend, I gave her a first comic. Which is a very bold move.
1: This is Not What You Think, I'm Zasha Rosen. You probably feel like comics are everywhere at the moment. With so many Marvel characters in the movies, on TV, from Iron Man to Jessica Jones, Batman and Superman on the screen again, it feels like this must be a big time for comic books. But this isn't the first time that comics have gone through a massive boom. It happened in the 90s as well. Today on the show, we're going to be talking to comic artist Matt Wynn. But first, well, I'll let Marcelo tell it. He was there.
2: My name is Marcelo Baez. I'm an illustrator, graphic designer, comic artist. been doing this uh, professionally for about eight to ten years, uh, but I've been drawing since I was a young lad. Comic fans are know these stories back to front. What was happening with um, Image, the image boom that happened in, in America in the 90s where all these big creators are left... Uh, marvel to create their own comic company a lot of them just thought you know we don't want to work for marvel the corporate comic place anymore and we want to create our own business and reap the rewards of owning the characters and owning everything that really affected everything in terms of the way people looked at comics for a period people really felt like comics were going to be worth a lot of money and the companies felt like oh let's make multiple covers and people just got excited young people and then speculators started getting involved and thinking let's buy up 10 copies of each issue and i think this just really happened until the bubble burst and people realized that you know there's so many copies of so many of these popular issues how can they possibly be worth anything if there's like if there's a million copies of of spider-man issue one by todd mcfarlane or whatever it was the guys that left marvel they're almost like Rock stars. They were almost seen as rock stars from the point of view of all the geeky comic people because they used to go to different comic shops around America and they'd have like signings and there was huge lineups, people lining up for like rock stars. It was bizarre. And the amount of money they were getting paid for certain jobs, they made a million dollars for one issue. Even the ones that weren't the most popular image books that came out, like uh, I think it was Jim Valentino, he made a million dollars on one issue. Most of these guys made so much money in the first issue or the second issue, there was a lack of consistency, and they were so young as well. Most of them were in their early 20s. Like, what happens when you give a a young kid a million dollars and he's only 20? I don't think he's going to focus on making more comics, he's just going to want to party. And that's what pretty much a lot of them did, which I can understand.
1: So is this like a generation of Justin Bieber's, pretty
2: much? Yeah, yeah, that's a horrible way to put it, but probably, yeah, yeah. God, that's a horrible thing to say, but yeah, that's probably true. When you look at the Australian industry, a lot of people like to say that there really isn't an industry locally, and and there isn't in a way, because there is no big company here that has work, like for example, like Marvel and DC over in America. Everything's self-published here. I mean, anyone with real talent and a bit of brain power realizes that they've got to get their work up to a standard and then look for work overseas. I don't know if it was a boom here, but I definitely feel like there was, a, there was an explosion of creativity in the 90s of people feeling confident enough to, to publish their work and sell their books. And they sold well, like Hair But the Hippo, Platinum Grit, Dar and Dill, Greener Pastures. I've probably forgotten a few others, but they sold really well and they were quite popular, like here in Australia. But mainly at the shows, it's not like there's a big name where people would remember it like Spider-Man or Batman and everyone knows it. It's not that kind of popularity. My first self-published comic, which I actually sold okay, considering I was no one, I was no name, and I just came out selling my comic at shows called Diabla. I sold it, and I was surprised that people liked it. In my first six months, I think I sold 150 copies, and I, I felt like Stephen King. From someone that had never sold anything... And I got rid of 150 copies in six months. And that's not going hardcore selling. That was just going to a few shows and dropping books off at a few comic shops and begging the people to sell it for me and things like that. I met Matt when he was... Matt was really young I was in my late 20s, I think. And I met him at a comic, comic convention. He was he was quite amazing because I was starting out my comic book and he was doing bits and pieces. But he showed a lot of potential. Matt's stuff was incredible, even when he was really young. He must have been 15. Maybe 16. Yeah. It's funny because I live here in Wollongong and I went up to Sydney on a Saturday with my niece and my wife and they were shopping and I just wanted to go to the comic shops. So they went their way and I went my way and then I bumped into Matt and I thought Matt was in New York. And I said, what are you doing here? He said, oh, I just got back. And I was like, oh, dude, this is cool. And then I just said to him, like a big comic geek, I just said to him, hey, man, let's go shopping for comics. And, and And Matt just said to me, that sounds awesome. Let's go.
0: When I ran into Marcelo in that, we actually went to Comic Kingdom because it was closing down. And so it was like a last hurrah for us.
1: And that's been around for decades in Sydney. It's a really old school comic shop. It
0: was the first comic shop I've ever been to. And the same posters are on the walls after all these years. And uh, it was so good. And Marcelo grabbed a whole bunch of uh, Jack, Jack Kirby's and stuff. They opened up the old back areas. They wouldn't usually let people in. So you could find out what
1: was in those old long boxes and everything. It was the best. Matt Wynn is a comic artist who started his career in Sydney, and his career itself has gone through a bit of a boom. He was pretty successful here, and now overseas in New York City. He's famous, not least, for drawing Namly and in SBS's interactive comic The Boat. He started his career after the 90s boom, but the landscape of how comics are made has been changing a lot over the last 10-15 years. Matt, thanks for coming in.
0: Thanks for having me. Does
1: it feel good to buy a new comic? To buy a new comic? Yeah, like is there a thrill to the, the collection of this sort of stuff?
0: Yeah, I've been in and out of collecting comics. I buy a lot of indie comics
1: and just things that kids starting out are doing. That's kind of what I really do and try and support. So not Superman, Batman, Avengers. Indie comics is something different.
0: Well, I have lately been buying commercial stuff a lot more. Only because I've come back home to my hometown and visited my old comic shops and old haunts and everything and saw the old guys behind the counter and got swept into all the new releases and stuff and started picking that up. There's a lot of exciting new releases.
1: So it's not just nostalgia for you at the moment?
0: No, it's like, I'm, I'm genuinely curious, right? Like, there's the new new third installment of The Dark Knight. I, like, I went out to the stores on the day that came out.
1: And th- this is the story that some of the upcoming film, Batman vs Superman, is based on. It's a dark story made by a comic stalwart, the guy who did Sin City, Frank Miller.
0: Yeah, he did Sin City. He did 300... He did a great Daredevil run. It was like really noir, but yeah, in the comics world. Well. I was I'm a big fan of that stuff. And the third installment's coming out and or it just came out. And it's it's kind of a big deal cuz he's collaborating with other people and he's been not well as well I've heard, so it's curious to me to where he's at. He's such an auteur. It's not not like I'm just, like, catching up with the next Batman. That's kind of different. Like, it's a bit overwhelming keeping up with what Batman gets up to this week. But, like, he's such a strong voice, you know? Like, I I really follow artists and writers in the comics world. Like, it's more more than the character arcs and everything, that's too overwhelming. But, like, there are, are, like, superstar creators that I'm always kind of curious about and kind of have a soft spot for.
1: One of the things we're going to be talking about today is what Marcelo has been talking about, which is the big international industry and people in Australia trying to either get involved or put together a rival industry. And you've described these attempts in the 90s as kind of ambitious, because we, we don't have those sorts of big stars over here, or at least on the whole we don't, maybe not yet.
0: Yeah, well, I guess we don't... It's, it's different today, but say, like, back in the 90s and back in the 2000s, like, our comic industry... It was like Marcelo said, it's kind of hard to call it an industry because there's not much of a official publishing world here for that. And there's such a lack of history, you know, there's not. we don't have decades and decades and decades of characters and goodwill and branding and all that kind of stuff.
1: Did we have a boom? Did we try to take advantage of the big boom in the 90s?
0: I think there was a little bit of a writing of it. Like the, the work that came out in the period of the 90s boom... It's definitely um, something of its time, you know. I think Marcelo would even say, like, Diablo is something that felt of its time, you know. Not, like, I'm not saying it's dated or anything, I love Diablo. And I, I love the work that's, like, that came out during that time, but it's, you know, a lot of the glossier stuff. was like, Cyber Swine and Hair But the Hippo and Squadron Supreme and, you know, there was Green of Harshes as well, and there was Darn Dill. And...
1: What were those comics like? What did they look like?
0: They looked like pamphlets. so or floppies so floppies are kind of like 32 page raggedy magazine format comics often filled with ads if you pick up the american ones like a whole comic or something the Australian ones are they're often self-published so probably less with the ads but they were distributed through news agents and um, at comic conventions and things
1: like that too do you like the change in in comic conventions since you started going
0: Oh, it's a blast still. I was really surprised. You know, even though it's, it's across a lot of pieces of fandom, it's so amazing how accepted and like mainstream fandoms become. I, Ma- maybe that's part of the movies and stuff. I don't really know. I don't understand it. But it's cool to see so many people of all ages, like kids and adults and families and everything, wearing it on their sleeve and dressing up and like really getting into it. I think that's amazing.
1: And like nowadays, it's easier to get something published in China, have it shipped back to you. This wasn't, it wasn't that easy back in the 90s.
0: Yeah, it it would have been a whole operation and the cost would have been so much higher. So you kind of had like a low level student, kinkos, Zine, Copying, Folding, stapling crowd. And then you would have had guys who were like really going for it and trying to set up printing and distribution from overseas, importing and warehousing and like getting it out through the newsagent. Distributors or even through diamond, which is um, kind of like the one big American distributor and getting that through their channels worldwide
1: and, and what happened to these guys? Are they rich and famous now?
0: Not that I know of <laughs> I've tried to follow up on some of them. I mean, I'm fans of them. I guess a lot of them have moved to other industries or to taking care of babies and there's kind of a generational like wash in and out of um, comic creators, you know.
1: So this sort of career path, the way it's been for you has been really different to the way it used to be in the 90s. Like, how how did you get started? So I I started with um, kind of on
0: the comics forums. I was just a fan and I was going to the shows.
1: So this is online forums. You're, You're able to just log into the internet and talk to people.
0: Yeah. I mean, they kind of died out with, like, Facebook groups, right? Like, but, I mean, you had your IRC channels. You had the Hayase channel and like kind of the manga anime crowd and then you had the comics crowd, but it was all too small so everyone kind of overlapped. A, a thing that would do every year was run a 24-hour comic challenge, which is like Scott McCloud's comic challenge to create a full 24-page comic in 24 hours. And one year I decided to do that for the first time. And um, yeah, you make friends really fast when you stay up with them all night, even online, and there's a camaraderie to it. It was a terrible, terrible comic, but it kind of gave me the confidence to make comics.
1: It sounds like with that, it was more like radio where sounding big and professional is not the thing these days. Mm -hmm. Sounding casual, or at least being able to fake sounding casual, whatever you think that me and Matt are doing right now, (laughs) that that works really well. Is, Is that about right? That's how you got started?
0: Well, you know, I knew I was making something that was small was for my own exploration that was done more as a social activity and a creative exercise, kind of like running a marathon. It wasn't something I expected to make a new franchise off of or anything.
1: How did it lead into you being able to make money out of drawing things now?
0: Well, that, that gave me a lot of confidence to make a bunch of other work. They start off really simple, just photocopied zines, stapled together myself, and, and then I would print my own, and the production got better, and... Um, my audience kind of grew and I kind of attracted attention for my work and people liked it But people couldn't really give me comic book jobs because there's no comic book industry right? There's no publishers. This is
1: the early thousands that we're talking about now Yeah, you know, e- yeah. E- even then there's there's no point to go in your career after you've had the exciting first few things There's not a lot of midpoint sort of stuff here in Sydney.
0: It was like a community of self-publishers Maybe the odd book publisher trying to start an arm of graphic novels or something. So it wasn't really on my radar. And the stuff I was doing, because it was so consuming and comics take such a long time and you're finding your own money to do it, and I was launching and exhibiting them and all that, they had to be quite important to me and I really had to be motivated to do it. So the comics I made, I made because I didn't see those kinds of comics on the shelves and I wanted them on the shelves.
1: You said in the past that one of the things that was the upside of there not being like a big publishing industry here was that you had to get funding from really interesting and unusual sources.
0: Without the formal support for it, you have to find funding by yourself, just like backing your own printing and production and time spent on the work, or through alternative means, through like grants or art institutions, councils, libraries, or some other way of funding it outside of the traditional publishing model then, yeah, it takes its toll if you, don't, if you don't hit success right away. Part of that comes hand in hand with being a young creator and not having a built-in audience as well and having to find new and unusual audiences. Maybe I would make a comic that was a little more slick and I knew I could go to design fairs with it. So I felt like I had to go overseas and talk to people who had kind of a greater sense of that history and education and lineage.
1: From the 90s when we're talking about this original boom to the early 1000s when you're starting out to now, each one of those steps, the way that digital tools have changed how you make comics, it's enormous each time. Though.
0: Technology has changed, everything from the marketing of it and the distribution and a lot of comics just get thrown up, you know, just thrown up on Tumblr or a website or like a custom display or something, but that's it's good for content, it's good for experimentation and... I
1: th- um, it's good for costs. D- does that make it easier to to break into the industry?
0: I don't really know. See I feel this is when I feel really old talking about this stuff because there are definitely breakouts. There's like si- uh, Simon Hanselman or you know like examples of like a, Australian artists and creators who can tap into a global audience and cross over and you know go straight to being printed with whoever fanographics or whatever. My work is still very traditional, at least in the way it feels, but that, even that's made with a consciousness that the audience is going to receive it through a very slick digital display, you know, behind a glassy, glossy screen and with light shining in the eyes and everything. So I, I very consciously try and keep things very tactile and human and
1: warm. You've got all these new tools, you've got these different ways of getting your work in front of people who can help you start your career if you're lucky. Do you feel like this is all too good, that we're in the middle of an, another boom? Like Marvel movies are going to be around for a bit, people will notice what comics are, and then it all drops away? Or does this feel like an upward curve?
0: Ah, oh, it's really tricky, that question, because in a lot of ways, it's kind of like the boom in the 90s. It feels like it doesn't have all that much to do with what I do. Like Spider-Man issue one by Tom McFarlane selling X million copies or whatever. I don't know how much that affects my Asylum Seeker interactive comic. Or, or Jessica Jones getting a Netflix series, like, an, you know, a relatively obscure Marvel character or something. I don't know how much that trickles down to people who are making comics. I think a benefit has definitely been the accessibility of comics is so much greater. I used to have to just read anything I could get because there just wasn't that much of it. So I was just an omnivorous consumer of comics. like now the richness and diversity of subject matter and of writers and artists is so much better. With comic communities during the time that I came up it was harder to find your community, your group of freaks. You'd be stuck with the superhero guy if you were doing really emotional autobiographical comics or something. So yeah the community was so small you all kind of stuck together on the monthly meet up at the bar or the cafe or the IRC channel or the forum or something but like these days it's so much easier to cross borders online and um, find peers to work with to collaborate with which is comics is can be at its most joyful collaborative and to find mentors who are doing what you're interested in
1: do you think that's the future of Australian comic making that people will work here and find mentors publication and, and communities overseas
0: I think there is a global feel, like more kind of like a feel of the time than there is like a local feel when I look at comics, new comics, young comics. But you can't really replace like a studio environment and the people you know in your town and like the gang you run with, you know. There's a strong voice that comes out from the people that you're just swapping ideas with every day and technique with and just you're just kind of like soaking in the smell of the ink and each other's work and each other's sweat and um, feeling bad about not putting in as much hours at the risograph machine or whatever you're doing. You know, there's something that can't replace that.
1: So in the future, people... Australians are still going to have to go to New York or whatever the centre of comics is and, and meet other, other comic makers. I
0: think it's good to go because people hire people that they think about and know and everything. But I don't think it's necessary to build your audience that way. Yeah, I think... The benefit of it is that you get a feel and a flavour of how people work at a level that is world-class and professional, you know, and I think that's really valuable. That's an education. If
1: somebody was going to start reading comics after listening to this podcast, what would be a good place to start?
0: Yeah, that's so hard. Two things immediately popped into my mind, just like recent experiences, I guess. When I first met my girlfriend, I gave her her first comic, which is a very bold move because, you know, it's kind of a line in the sand.
1: But where, where you find out whether giving her a comic ends your relationship or not.
0: Hey, it went well, man. It went well. They gave a chicken with plums by Marjane Satrafi, who did uh, Persepolis as well. I think that's a great book. I th- like, I, Yeah, p- people don't people kind of dispute it, but I think that's a really lovely book. The whole time we were talking about Miller and Mazzucchelli's run on Porn Again on Daredevil. It's such a watertight noir comic book. It's so effective and it's not a formless work, you know, it's not heady or anything. It's just, it's like watching a Sydney LeMay crime caper or something. It's like a 70s cop film or something. Yeah, it's so enjoyable
1: and it's such great storytelling. Matt, thanks for coming in and talking to us today. Thank you. You can check out Matt's work, buy some of his books, read some of his books for free via mattwhin.com. That's M-A-T-T-H-U-Y-N-H dot com. You can find Marcelo Baez's work at marcelobaez.com. That's Marcelo with an R, 1C, 1L. We'll put up links to both on our show page. If you like this episode and you want to hear more, we've got lots more. Go to fbiradio.com slash not what you think to hear all of this season's episodes and two seasons worth of archived episodes. There are also a bunch of other great FBI podcasts at fbiradio.com slash podcasts. Do you have an idea for a show that you think we should be talking about? There's a link on that page for you to tell us all about it. Not What You Think is produced by Samira Farah with additional production by Olivia Piri-Griffiths and Lachlan Wiley. It was created by Claire Holland, Laura Briley, and me, I'm Zasha Rosen. Next week, we're taking a week off from the podcast, but if you listen to the broadcast on FBI Radio, 10.30 a.m. Saturdays, 94.5 FM in Sydney, then you'll hear a repeat of our Families of Muslim Offenders episode, which you can find right now by scrolling back in your podcast feed. The podcast will be back in two weeks. That's Friday, March the 11th, with an episode on newspapers for children. Keep listening for our next episode.